The book of Colossians is divided into two main sections. It's easily divided up. Chapters 1 and 2 are doctrinal. Chapters 3 and 4 are practical. The first two chapters containing important teaching, especially regarding Christ. The second part, chapters 3 and 4, showing us how the believer is to live and behave in the light of such teaching about Christ. It is true to say that what we believe will most certainly affect how we behave. It was the case among pagan religions of Paul's day that little or nothing was ever said about personal morality. For example, a worshipper could bow down before an idol, he could place his offering on the altar, and then go back and live the same old life of sin that he lived before. A bit like people who go to confession to a priest, tell them as best they can all the bad stuff that they did since the last confession, and then just go away back and do the same things all over again. It's the same thing. What a person believed among the pagans really didn't have any direct relationship to how he behaved. And no one would ever condemn such a person for his behavior. But the Christian religion brought into pagan society a whole new concept. Which is, what we believe has a very definite connection with how we behave. We know that the Bible speaks in the book of Titus about some who professed to be godly. Titus chapter 1 verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. In other words, their behavior did not tie in with their professed belief. What we believe most certainly will affect how we behave. If we think that there's nothing after this life, that there's no God for us to have to worry about, there's no God with whom we have to do, we will never face the consequences of our sin. That will directly impact on how we live. And that's how many are living. They're living as if there is no God, as if there are no consequences, that there's no judgment, there's no eternity. But if you really believe with all your heart that there is a God, one that you must stand before and give an account of yourself to Him, it's definitely going to have an effect on how you behave, or it should do so. Now we studied about the Christian and his Christ, the Christian and his creed, and now when we come to chapter 3 from the first verse right through to the first verse of chapter 4, we're really dealing with the Christian and his character. You have here in chapter 1 of Colossians what is essentially a description of the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 you have a defense of the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. But in chapter 3 through to the first verse of chapter 4, there is set forth a demonstration of the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, 
a practical demonstration in the lives of the people of God of those things that they profess to believe. You could divide this portion really into four, and I have done so from chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It speaks of holiness in the heart. From chapter 3, verse 12 down to verse 17, it refers to harmony in the church. In the same chapter 3, from verse 18 to verse 21, we could describe that as honor in the home. And there's a word there for everybody. Husband, wife, children, even servants. And then from verse 22 of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 1, it's really speaking about honesty in the workplace. How we are to serve. In our modern day, we would apply this to employers and employees. So there's holiness in the heart. There's harmony in the church. There's honor in the home. There's honesty in the workplace. Those are the four subjects that are brought before us. And therefore, you can see it's a very practical passage. As one has said, this is where the rubber meets the road. The Lord is speaking about things that we can clearly understand. The character and the conduct of a Christian is in view here. The foundation of doctrinal truth having been laid, the Apostle proceeds to mention the practical implications of all of this. If we believe all these things to be true, then there are certain things that should flow from that truth in our everyday lives. And one, one thing that I remark here from the passage is that Paul actually moves from this terminology, in Christ, to using the term, with Christ. And notice this, chapter 1 and verse 2, he talks about, to the saints and faithful brethren, in Christ. You'll see the same thing in verse 4. Your faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, again it is in whom. In verse 28, it is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now look at chapter 2 verse 5, at the last part of the verse, your faith in Christ. You'll see it again in verse 6, you'll see it again in verse 7, and in verse 10. In Him. In Him. In Christ. But then, you look at chapter 2 verse 12. It says, buried with him, with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. You see it also in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. With him, having, uh, hath he quickened together with him. Once more in verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ. And then that continues into chapter 3, verse 1, risen with Christ. Verse 3, hid with Christ in God. And in verse 4, finally, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. So he goes from in Christ to talking about with Christ. From our position in Christ, where the apostle is focusing on what we have 
in our Lord Jesus, he goes on to speak of our union with Christ. But we have along with the Savior, really focusing on our identification with him. You have your position in Christ, you have your identification with Christ, and both of those together should have a practical consequence, a practical effect in your life from day to day. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now these are the words, it's really on the basis of them, that Paul uses to begin the third chapter. If ye then be risen with Christ. See, he's mentioned that in chapter 2, verse 12. Wherein also ye are risen with him. So now chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. In other words, if these things are so, then here's how you are to live. Here's, here's what you're to do on the basis of that. We are to live our lives each day as those who are united to Christ. You'll notice that he says that Christ is our life. Chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. There are really four things about the life of the believer that I want to bring before you that Paul mentions in this particular portion. You'll see in the first place that the life of the believer is to be an heavenly life. Let's read the words again, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ. And I should point out that the word if, though in our English language it often refers to that which is in doubt, in this case it probably should be translated since. It's all right as it is, but the sense of it is not if, in terms of a question. You know, if you're really risen with Christ. No, he's really saying here, since it is true, since it is the case that you are risen with Christ, therefore seek those things which are above. You see, we were once dead. And he talks about that in verse 3 again. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. But we have been raised. Chapter 2 verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. And that's a word that means made alive. Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So think about this. You're dead in your sins but you have been made alive with Him. I read of two sisters, both unsaved, who enjoyed very much attending dances and wild parties. They were party girls. But they were converted. The Lord saved them and they found new life in Christ. But they received an invitation from friends to a party. And they sent back the RSVP with these words, We regret that we cannot attend because we recently died. That's tremendous. 
That's what they were talking about. We died with Christ. That's the old life. That's not us anymore. And by the way, Christians need to pay attention to that in the day in which we live. Because we've got an awful lot of people who don't think like that and they don't practice that. They think it was all right to go to the parties in the past and now that I profess Christ, it's still okay to go to the parties. Well, I'll tell you, it's not. It's not. And if you're really saved, you'll know that it's not. You won't need anybody to tell you. Dale Moody was speaking to a young man one day and he said to Moody, Pastor, if I get saved, if I come to Christ, am I going to have to give up the world? And Moody said to him, No son, if you really get saved and get the goods, the world will give you up. You'll not be getting the invitations to those parties anymore. They know that's not your scene any longer. See, every conversion is a spiritual resurrection. That's what Jesus was talking about, what Paul's referring to here in John chapter 5. Look at it. John 5, verse 24 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. It doesn't say he will have, he could have in the future. He says he has it. You're already saved if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is what? Is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Every conversion is a spiritual resurrection. And if you're a true child of God tonight, you once were dead in trespasses and sins, but you've been raised with Christ. Years ago, there was a body of Christian men in East Belfast, where I'm from. And they ran a little mission hall, which was down by the city docks, down by where the ships came in, called the Coal Men's Mission. It was right beside the quay where the coal used to be delivered off of ships. And those men were simply known as the coal men's testimony band. And I remember as a young child being taken there on a Saturday night with my parents. And the place was heaving with people. They used to have amazing music. Accordions and fiddles. All manner of instruments. And those men who ran that place were absolute characters. All of them were coal men who had been converted by the grace of God. They used to have nicknames, Pop Stewart, Wee Sammy Spence, who sometimes was called Dodger Spence. Not sure why, but there was Billy Stewart. There was Tommy Truesdale, Bob Moffat. I knew some of these men later. Sammy Dunlop and many others. They used to travel all over Ulster taking meetings, testifying about what God had done in their lives. They used to travel around in a converted hearse. A big old 
hearse that was used obviously had been used for funerals but they had got this idea instead of getting like a minivan or something like that which they probably didn't have in those days they would buy this big old hearse they removed the platform at the back of the hearse that was used to carry the caskets this is quite funny really but in its place they put seats so that the hearse could carry ten people at a time and although it had been converted into a sort of a, a, a minibus it still looked like a hearse but whenever they travelled around Ulster people used to stop at the approach of this hearse farmers especially used to don their caps when they saw the hearse respectfully as it was passing thinking that the remains of some poor person was inside but whenever the hearse got up close they would see those men we saw me and Big Billy and Pop Stewart and all those other men as large as life and singing from their hearts. And people looking aghast at this read on the side of the hearse in big letters passed from death unto life. Passed from death unto life. Very ingenious. And at the back of the van they had emblazoned on their Heaven via the cross. We are dead in our sins. But when we're saved, we're raised to life in Christ. What a wonderful truth that is. What a great thing this is to be assured of. Those who are saved have experienced the miracle of the heavenly life. Ephesians 2 verse 1 speaks of it, doesn't it? And youth hath you hath he quickened, it means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. There's a lovely hymn and it says, it took a miracle. It took a miracle to save my soul. It took a miracle to make the world. It took a miracle to do all these various other things that the Lord did in his ministry. But as that hymn says, but when he saved my soul cleansed and made me whole it took a miracle of love and grace you know when a person gets saved it's such an amazing thing it's a miracle this is why it's so hard to see people get saved because when they really get saved they've experienced a miraculous resurrection from death unto life it's something that's beyond men preachers can't accomplish it the people themselves can't accomplish it. It's God's work. Salvation is of the Lord. And by the way, that's why we pray for people. Because they can't save themselves. And nobody else but the Lord can save them. So we're praying, Lord, quicken them. Save them. Because if He doesn't, they'll never be saved. The miracle of the heavenly life. And just as the Lord called that man Lazarus from his grave and he came forth, at the sound of those words, Lazarus, come forth. So it is with every one of us who is truly the Lord's tonight. We heard that voice personally saying to us, come forth. It's been remarked by more than one preacher that if Jesus had not prefaced those words, come forth, with the word Lazarus, the whole graveyard would have come forth. 
But he didn't. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, who was dead, who was already beginning to decompose. At least his sisters had that in view. They said, Lord, it's been four days. By this time he stinketh. He wasn't just dead. He was already very dead. But the Lord raised him, just as he does with those that are dead in their sins. So there's the miracle of the heavenly life. And we can talk about the means of the heavenly life. Notice that it says in Colossians 3, risen with Christ. With Christ. There's an empty tomb over there in Israel. And there's a risen Lord. Christ has risen. And we are risen with Him. That is to say, the life that we now have is resurrection life. Yes, one day, if we go through the natural processes of death, and our body goes into the tomb, into the grave, we will be raised, literally. And that also will be because He has risen from the dead. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. But the power of the gospel message, the spiritual message, is that it is the power of the resurrection. And without the resurrection, of course, there is no gospel. Just study 1 Corinthians 15, and you see that that is the case. So, we emphasize this. The life that we have in the Lord is a heavenly life. But it's also a hidden life. Look here at Colossians 3, verse number 3. It's a hidden life. For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. We have died and we are risen with Christ. But we now enjoy a life with, which is secure. Ye are hid with Christ in God. I suppose we could illustrate this as being a bit like a treasure deposited in the vault of a bank. Our eternal life is safe in the impregnable vault of the bank of heaven. Remember how Jesus talked about this? Where your treasure should be. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are those who lay up treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. This is the life that we have. The Apostle John referred to it in 1 John chapter 3. He says in the first three verses, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. It's hidden from them. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We have a life that is hidden in Christ. The world doesn't really understand believers. The story is told of the famous Sansi diamond that was sent from a French nobleman to Henry IV. The messenger who carried the diamond 
was ambushed by thieves who left the man for dead, but they could not find the diamond. When the authorities found his body, they opened up his abdomen only to find that the messenger had hidden the diamond in his stomach. The treasure was hidden away. We are hidden in Christ. There's not a robber in earth or in hell that can ever touch us there. There was a tyrant once who threatened to kill a believer for his faith in Christ. And that believer told him, You can touch my body, but my life is hid with Christ in God. Our life is hidden from the world also in this sense. They don't understand it. You know, the world can't figure out Christians. They really can't. They don't understand that Christ himself is our life. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. You know, there are people in this world, and they live for sport. They live for leisure activities. Or they might live for business, making money. And that's their life. And if you ask them, what is your life? They'll, they'll tell you, this is my life. This is my whole life. Everything I do is devoted to this. But the Christian ought to be able to say of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is my life. To me, to live is Christ, Paul said. And to die is gain. The words here to appear in verse number 4. Then shall you also appear with him. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. That word appear is a word that really means to make manifest what has been hidden. And as we are raised with Christ, and as we are hidden with Christ in God, so we are going to be manifested with Christ. The late pastor, Willie Mullen, used to say, Friends, if the unsaved really knew that Christians are the aristocracy of heaven, they would tip their hats at us. Not that we're anything in ourselves, but it's what we are in Christ. We mean something to Him. We are His treasure. Remember how that parable talks about going and finding the treasure hid in the field? Sometimes there are different interpretations of that. But surely the treasure can be applied to the church. Surely it can be applied to God's people. We mean a lot to the Lord. We mean everything to Him as He means everything to us. Because He is the head and we are the body. But the life of the Christian, quickly, is not only a heavenly life and a hidden life. It is a hopeful life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Our Lord is going to be manifested in glory. And all of His people, all of His people, will be glorified with Him. When my dear mum was in the throes of passing away, I remember it very, very well. My brother-in-law used to come every day and read the Bible and pray with her every single day of her sickness. 
including those eight weeks in the hospice. I remember this one day I was reading this scripture in Philippians 3, the last two verses for our conversation. It means our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And I remember my dear mum could hardly speak, but she was whispering the words, He shall change our vile body. He shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And I can show you, I have it written in the flyleaf of my Bible right here, mum's text near the end. What a wonderful truth this is. Then shall ye appear with him in glory. Is this not a glorious hope that we have? 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament. And here are words that we often hear, particularly at the time of a death or of a funeral. As we have borne the image of the earthly, so shall we also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a hopeful life. This is a hopeful life. Because we're going to be with Him in glory. Someone asked a Christian one time, when you get to heaven, do you think the Lord will know you and that you will know the Lord? And this person replied, of course, but I think I will hardly know myself. How true that is. This is a hopeful life. Thank God we're on our way to glory. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. But then, of course, this life that we have is to be a holy life. This is how Paul began here in chapter 3. If or since ye then be risen with Christ, if this is true, if you have been resurrected, you're no longer dead in your sins, then seek those things which are above, 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That's heavenly things. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Things above. This is a heavenly and a holy mindset. Is that how we live? Notice the two things that we're to do. We are to seek and we are to set. We're to seek what? Verse 1, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That means seeking heaven and heavenly things. Having an interest in eternal and spiritual things. Yes, it is true that we have to live in this world. We have to have lawful employment. We have to eat and drink. We have to pay our bills. We have to live here. As someone said, we're not yet in the sweet by and by. We're living in the nasty now and now. It's true. We're here. But while we're here, surely we should be looking forward to eternity. Because that's where we're all headed. Samuel Rutherford, the great covenanter, used to have some wonderful sayings. And one of the things that he used to like to say was this, My heart is no longer my own. Christ hath run away to heaven with it. That's where my heart is. Christ has run away to heaven with my heart. Oh, we can become so earthbound, can't we? We get so bent out of shape about the things that are happening all around us politically, even religiously. We can have ourselves almost in a constant state of perplexity because of the things that we experience in this life. The things that we see around us. But we have to remember that we're on our way to heaven. We're on our way to heaven. This is not our home. This is the place of our pilgrimage. Abraham and the others were talked about by the Lord in Hebrews 11 as those who dwelt in tabernacles. It means tents. When I was much younger, with my family growing up, we used to go camping a lot. And with the Ulster weather, you soon found out that a tent is not permanent. Especially when the wind starts to blow and the lashing out of the heavens, and you realize, you know what, we need to fold up the tent and go home. This is not a good idea. You pull up the tent pegs, you roll up the tent, you bind it all, you take it away home, and away you go. A tent is something that you stay in, not permanently but just for a time. It does its job, but it's not our home. That's us in this life. In fact, our own human bodies are like tents. That's what Paul said when he talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice this, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, the word is tent, that's what it means. If this earthly house of this tent were dissolved. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the permanent building. For in this, in the tent we groan, 
earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. He says we're willing and we're confident. We're willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It means to be at home with the Lord. What are we to seek? We're to seek heaven and the things that are above. Let us not be so earthbound that we don't have heaven on our minds. This is what it means to have a holy life. We are to seek those things which are above. See, spiritually speaking, we are in Christ and we're already seated in heavenly places in Him. Years ago there was a a senator in this country called Hubert Humphrey. And he was once making a comment uh, concerning something in the United Nations. And he was asked a question about something. And he said this to the reporter. You must remember that in politics, how you stand depends on where you sit. And you know what he was referring to? He was referring to the political party seating arrangement in the Senate. But you apply that to the gospel and to our position in Christ. How I stand and how I walk in this world depends on where I sit. And I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's where my mind should be, really, at the end of the day. And that brings us to this. We're not only to seek, but we are to set. We are to set our affection. Which, if you look at the margin in Colossians 3 and verse 2, the word affection is alternately translated as mind. You know what your mind is, don't you? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. It has sometimes been said, you could be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly use. I don't know anybody like that. I've never met anyone in my life who I could say was so heavenly minded that they were no earthly use. We need to be more heavenly minded. Set your affection. It means your mind on things above. On things above. Is that what we do? I'm sure you've heard of Robert Ballard. He's a man who, on the 1st of September 1985, discovered the hull of the great Titanic shipwreck, 350 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. It was lying at a depth of two miles on the ocean floor. This is what Robert Ballard said about his quest for that sunken wreck. Quote, My first direct view of the Titanic lasted for less than two minutes. But the stark sight of her immense black hull towering above the ocean floor will remain forever ingrained in my memory. You see, my lifelong dream was to find the great ship. And during the past 13 years... The quest for her has dominated my life. So what Robert Ballard was really saying was that he lived day and night for something that was hidden in the depths. And surely this is what the Lord wants us to do as believers. To be living our lives 
with that which is above always on our minds. You see, it's the holy person who is not worldly. He is otherworldly. Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I ask you and I ask myself the same question. What is your heart set upon more than anything else in this world? I was telling folks the other day about when I was a little boy of, I think I was about four years old. Myself and another little four-year-old boy from Belfast used to go with our parents to an open-air meeting on a Sunday night outside the Belfast City Hall. Hundreds and hundreds of people used to be gathered there. And our minister at the time was a Scotsman, was a wonderful accordion player and singer. He used to start playing that squeeze box and the people would come just flocking to hear. I recall more than once my father and this other little boy's father holding us up by the legs to a microphone and Mr. McKeown playing the accordion and me and we Geordie Ramsey singing this world is not my home I'm just a passing through my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore oh Lord You know I have no friend like you. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Is that how we live? With heaven on our minds, may the Lord help us to live in that way. Amen.